0: Welcome everyone to Martiak Market Update with your host Mark Martiak. Mark is a Managing Director of Investments with AGP, Alliance Global Partners, member of FINRA and CIPIC. This show will explore topics ranging from market updates to the global economy and personal finance. Money is knowledge, and Mark wants to help you navigate your relationship with money by offering timely guidance and his unique perspective. Here's Mark Martiak.
1: I'm Mark Mardiak, and this is the Mardiak Market Update. Welcome back and a festive welcome to the year 2022. Thank you for joining me as we discuss key trends shaping our industries and markets. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Bradford Pinault, a capital market strategist for the Fidelity Institutional Asset Management team. Our conversation today will focus on the 2022 market outlook and what it may mean for your investment portfolio. Market volatility has spiked in recent sessions as investors have grown anxious about how rapidly the Federal Reserve will act to combat inflation by raising interest rates and shrinking its balance sheet. Brad will likely shed some light on this. Before we begin, allow me to tell you a little bit about Brad. For the past four years, Brad is responsible for delivering timely market and economic commentary to Fidelity Institutional Asset Management clients across this great country. He's a chartered financial analyst, has his master's in management from Bryan University, and a BS degree in finance from UMass Dartmouth. Welcome to the show, Brad.
2: Thank you, Mark. Happy to be here.
1: So uh, from a top view down, can you briefly just describe why January has been off to such a volatile start?
2: Uh, yes, without a doubt. So, and you did speak to it, obviously, uh, aforementioned Fed policy around higher inflation. And to us, obviously, this downside volatility is expecting that inflation is a bad thing, right? Higher inflation, higher prices. And a Fed has the mandate, obviously, to create price stability. And now we're seeing a 40-year high in inflation, and we do know that the Fed is, and monetary policy in general, is going to look to tighten, uh, obviously, to combat these higher prices, Mark. But to us, we are big believers that when the Fed Reserve has historically tightened and when we've seen inflation, that's typically emblematic of a growing, not weakening economy and there's plenty of economic data that would suggest that's exactly what we're seeing here. We're seeing an economy that hasn't grown this fast in almost 4 decades and as a byproduct we certainly have higher inflation among other reasons for that inflation. So that's the general thesis here is that for what you know the markets thinking that the Fed is just going to completely tighten us into oblivion uh, and we believe that's a bit short-sighted.
1: Do you anticipate any news that may be unusual that could enable the markets to, to come out of the doldrums that we're experiencing uh, upon the conclusion of this two-day Fed meeting, which concludes tomorrow?
2: Right. So, and this is a question we get all the time from certainly clients of ours, what's the Fed going to do? And to us, they're going to continue to say that we'll be data dependent. We don't see any change in policy here this week from the Fed We do expect that we'll get this first rate hike in March. Uh, For what it's worth, we believe 25 basis points makes sense. And as we know, Mark, the Fed back last year, around June, July, used the word transitory to talk about inflation. Now, the market, the media... They tested Jay Powell and the FOMC to say, do you really think this is transitory? But between you and, and myself here, yes, if you were to have a, a beer with Jay Powell, he would most likely tell you that this inflation will not remain sustainable. And therefore, they're really looking to you know tighten. But the other point is, do we still have an emergency environment in our economy? And again, the short answer is, no, we do not. So the Fed no longer needs to be employing an emergency playbook here with zero interest rates and expanding their balance sheet, right? their quantitative easing. So to us, tightening makes all the sense in the world, uh, and we believe that's exactly what they'll do. But no changes here tomorrow when we hear from the Fed.
1: I understand. But you anticipate a rate increase as early as March at the next Fed meeting, FOMC meeting. That is Correct. What do historical trends suggest that investors in equities could see during this calendar year? You know, what's interesting
2: is when you go back and you do all the number crunching, Mark, when the Fed has historically tightened, as I mentioned, it's because the economy is growing. You do tend to have some, some inflation at the same time. Equities, from a price perspective, typically go up When monetary policy has tightened. And if you go back to every rate hike back to 1983, and we're just using that 40 years of data, right? So, kind of the the most recent historical cycle, uh, that would be proven out, right? Equities do well when the Fed is tightening. And that doesn't surprise us because corporate fundamentals typically do well. Revenues are up, margins are healthy, bottom line profitability does allow for stock price appreciation. So this year in 2022, it's Fidelity's opinion and our belief, really, that earnings will be up approximately 10%, right? That's for the S&P 500. So on average, 10% earnings growth. And as we come into 2022, we can't ignore the facts. As we all know, Mark, the last three years have been fantastic for equities. So will we see prices go up 10%? it's anybody's guess you know my hunch tells me that prices will be positive right price gains will be up but they may not be up as much as that 10% because of the sentiment right the animal spirits the bullishness that we've seen really for the past 20 months has abated quite a bit so you might actually see multiples compress right where prices go up but not as much as the underlying fundamentals and that to us just makes for a healthier market especially for long-term investors
1: so earnings growth forecast for the S&P 500 of about 10%. That doesn't necessarily imply for our audience that uh, they could see a, a 10% return if they invested in, a, in an ETF or, or a fund that just tracked the S&P and index fund. That's correct. What's your base case for economic activity in 2022 as it relates to corporate fundamentals? You kind of alluded to it uh, just now, but uh, w- what's the base case?
2: So, I would urge investors to not forget that the federal government was exceptionally munificent, right? Very generous with their subsidies since the pandemic became part of our daily vernacular. Uh, So, we know that we got significant fiscal stimulus since March of 2020 between the CARES Act and the American Rescue Bill. We obviously had a Fed that started to employ the emergency provisions, brought rates down to zero, started to spend money on the economy. I bring this up because we still have a tremendous amount of excess savings on the sidelines. right? And we do know that labor gains have been substantial right? because of these policies from the federal government. So employers have hired people back. You put those two together, Mark, We have income gains that are organic, and we also have excess savings. Um, So consumers and households in general still remain in solid shape. And we believe that consumers will continue to consume. And of course, that's translated into revenue gains for companies. Now, some companies will have better revenue gains than others, uh, but nominal revenues should be up because of a strong consumer. And for good measure, economic activity should also be aided by a very strong Corporate sector, right? Corporations uh, issued a tremendous amount of debt, which is smart if you're a CFO for a company. When rates are this low, uh, why not borrow at very cheap rates? Made a lot of sense. The good news for those corporate operators is they put a lot of that debt issuance onto their balance sheet in cash. So they haven't spent it, right? They haven't paid down other debt. It's sitting there in cash. So between consumers and corporations, we believe the balance sheets of both, which are very significant for economic activity, uh, tell us that the economy should continue to grow here throughout
1: 2022. So in other words, investors, consumers at home, they have more cash on their personal balance sheets, as do corporations on their corporate balance sheets.
2: Without a doubt, I'll give you a couple numbers. Uh, two years ago, pre-pandemic, January 2020, personal savings in the United States sat just at around $1 trillion. It's a big number. But there are 80 million households in the United States, right? So some people had nothing, obviously, and others had a lot more. But today, that number sits right around $2.2 trillion. So it's more than 100% higher in two years. And a lot of that's because of either stimulus checks that people just haven't spent, or perhaps very generous unemployment insurance subsidies. So that's what we've seen. And then another statistic, I feel like it's a pretty good one. Corporations before the pandemic had... Cash levels that were about 5% of total assets. So if you look at all the companies in the S&P 500, about 5% of their total assets were sitting in Cash, right? Cash is obviously the, you know, in some ways the best asset. Today, that's six and a half percent. Now, that might not seem like a lot, right? Five to six and a half percent, but that's a 30% increase in just the last two years. So, yes, we would say that there's a, a cushion that we should not ignore uh, as we migrate through this year, which should absolve us of some of this downside volatility once we get through it.
1: And do you anticipate corporations spending that cash or? doing more stock buybacks and how does that play out with with corporations when they have a 30 percent surplus of cash than what they've more recently had
2: well so we make our money here fidelity by meeting with companies and finding out how they're going to maximize right their their bottom line and to have too much cash on a balance sheet that could be, obviously, an opportunity cost for some of these companies. Um, and there will, as I mentioned, some will be spending this money on capital expenditures. I mean, one big theme that we're talking a lot about is out of necessity, companies know that they can't find qualified help, right? There's a real shortage of qualified employees that have the prerequisite training or skill set. So out of necessity, these companies are looking to reinvest in machine-based capital. That sounds pretty fancy. But that's just when a company says, OK, if we don't have the people to stock our shelves, right, think of Target, for example, what are we to do? Uh, we don't want to miss out on a revenue, right, on our sale. So those companies, Target's just one simple example, are looking towards more automation, right? So semiconductors, software, so any type of machine-based capital. We do believe IT infrastructure, information technology infrastructure, could be an area of interest for a lot of companies here as we move through 2022.
1: That's capex spending, in other words, for for these corporations?
2: That is, yes. And then share buybacks, we haven't seen that through the pandemic to the degree we saw it pre-pandemic. But that makes sense, Mark, right? There, A lot of companies were just wondering when the next economic shutdown was going to come. So they didn't want to deploy that cash in case they needed it. And now it seems likely that we're not going to see some type of economic shutdown, right? Our opinion on the pandemic is that it seems to be getting better. Obviously, that's, that's a, a subjective opinion uh, these days. But nonetheless, if it does get better, you could certainly see a catalyst for more share buybacks. And let's not forget, share buybacks are a way to increase in a sense of financial engineering, I understand, but it can increase the earnings per share as there's less shares outstanding. And certainly, you might see that sometime in the second half of this year.
1: Speaking of the second half of the year, you mentioned there could be three potential rate hikes by the Fed this year. What could prevent the Fed from raising the fed funds rate whether it's in March in two months or at, a, at any time during the remainder of the year? What might prevent them say from going three times, uh, you know, raising the rates to just one or none? Do the, any of those scenarios exist? They always exist, right? And
2: in this business, there's never a zero or 100% probability, right? It's, 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 you certainly don't see never or always. And I bring that up because there's always a probability that the Fed might give us less hikes than the market is expecting. And it is our opinion here at Fidelity that there's really two reasons why the Fed, and I mentioned this a bit earlier, two reasons why the Fed will be looking to tighten. Uh, to was, the one that's not told nearly enough. Is because we no longer have an emergency. So the Fed is going to move off of these emergency provisions. Perfectly logical. If the economy were a patient, right, in the hospital, we're taking out the IV, right? No more intravenous fluid. And in fact, the patient should be able to go home, right, very, very soon because the patient's much healthier, right? And I hope that analogy is appropriate. Uh, And the Fed's the doctor, and the Fed says, hey, we no longer need zero interest rates. Uh, Makes a lot of sense. Now, what's the media's narrative, right? What's the one that's spooking this market here in late January? It's the one where inflation's at a 40-year high. And by the way, because we're at a 40-year high, right, 7% headline inflation, for whatever reason, you know, people have made up their minds that the Fed is going to need to get aggressive, right, in a very monomaniacal way. Uh, And we're just not there. So when you ask what could disallow the Fed from tightening, uh, to us, it will be that inflation starts to peak and decelerate. And that should happen sometime in the middle part of this year. So we don't want to make our livelihood on forecasting exactly what the Fed's going to do. But if I had to, and I am paid to have an opinion… We would suggest the Fed's going to give us that first hike in March, right, so they appear cognizant and not appear ignorant, right? That's important, right? Optics are everything in this business, especially when you're the world's largest bank, right, the Fed Reserve. So we're going to get that one hike in March, and then maybe we see one in May or June. By then, inflation should have peaked and should have decelerated. Now, why do I say it should have? Well, because the pandemic, right? The pandemic, as that recedes, we no longer have to close down ports and have all these sick calls and these warehouses, maybe China's zero COVID policies start to go away. And we know that there's a tremendous amount of manufacturing that's been put on hold in those Asian economies. So as that starts to get better, we hit peak bottleneck with supply chains. And sure enough, we start to get our products uh, a bit more quickly. And as that happens, we believe inflation decelerates. So the Fed should have ground cover here, Mark, to be more pragmatic versus be preemptive. Now, let me just say one other thing. This is a midterm election year. And politics aside, midterm election years are all about change, right, especially in the president's first term. So it would not be a crazy thought to see the Republicans show well on election night here come November. But I bring this up because people will say, well, Brad, do you think the Fed will go on hold because of the midterm, right? and obviously doesn't want to hurt the president's chances in the Democratic Party. I think that's ridiculous. I I don't believe the Fed will be influenced by the administration as much as they'd like to say, hey, Jay Powell, go on hold here, keep this economy running. But nonetheless, it comes up in almost every conversation I have, so I just wanted to bring that up.
1: No, that's an important point. And in fact, if there's a headline inflation number of 7% and you see that peaking about mid-year this year, that actually gives credence to uh, Fed Chair Powell's original statement that they saw inflation as transitory. That's been a debate. You mentioned the narrative, the media narrative, financial news, business news narrative is that is it transitory or isn't it? and uh, it would appear based on what we're seeing now it will be transitory and inflation will settle down to normal levels by mid mid year perhaps you know late third quarter
2: that's exactly right and there's different ways to define transitory uh, obviously and as we think about the headline number of 7% here's one simple example right oil prices oil prices are now sitting last time i looked around $80 a barrel right a year ago so the factoring into the seven percent year over year, oil prices were around forty dollars, right at the end of twenty twenty. So when we think about inflation, the year over year growth rate of the CPI index, because that's what inflation is, and I, I would assume that most people know that. But it really it is amazing how many people interchange CPI with inflation. Right, CPI is nothing more than the Consumer Price Index. It's an index, a basket of goods and services. Inflation is the growth rate of that index price year over year. And it might seem like a simple concept, but we bring that up because if oil was $40 in December of 2020, and then in December of 2021, it was $80, that's a 100% increase in oil And that obviously is going to factor into that 7% increase in the overall price level. We're not going to get to $160 oil by this December, right? I almost guarantee you that. So even though prices will remain elevated, the inflation, the year-over-year change of said prices should actually, very naturally, just the simple math of it, will peak and subsequently decelerate. And that's really important to know. And the Fed... Knows this, we know this, so we have to really, you know, dig in our heels uh, to see the Fed actually become kind of the upside surprise this year. Is that the Fed tightens less than the markets expecting them to, and they could actually appear dovish? <laughs> you know, dare I say it in a year in which everyone's just believing that they're going to be very hawkish? We, we're just not there.
1: Well, many analysts and, and economists were suggesting that the 10-year treasury yield would go up to 2% during calendar year 2021, and we didn't hit it in 2021. And so, you know, that's a, that's a barometer in terms of the bond market and what the bond market says about the economy, and obviously it tends to affect and has affected lately the mega cap tech stocks. So here we are now with the, you know, the 10-year yield being around 1.7. It's gotten as high as, I believe, 1.8 or so you know, in the month of January. Where do, you, where do you see that 10-year yield going?
2: So the Treasury, no. We'll talk about the 10-year first. To us, Mark, we expect the 10-year Treasury to get right around 2%. You could see it go as high as 225. But there's a real challenge with the 10-year Treasury yield going much higher. And the reason for that, it's all about demand for the Treasury note, right? I mean, let's not forget, the 10-year Treasury is nothing more than a security, just like Apple stock, right? Now, of course, 10-year Treasury is a bond, but it's a Treasury bond, Treasury note, if you, if you will, issued on behalf of the United States Treasury. Um, you know, Pretty basic stuff. But I bring it up because there is a supply and demand dynamic here. And we know the demand for the U.S. Treasury is exceptional. Right? And you can think of it this way. When people get fearful, why do 10-year Treasury yields typically go down? Well, they go down because what are you going to buy when you think the sky's falling? Right, If you think everything's going really badly, you're going to buy the safest security on the planet, and that's the United States Treasury's debt. Um, So obviously prices go up, yields come down. If you're a money center bank, right, the big banks, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, right, you have a lot of deposits that you're just not lending out as quickly enough. So are you going to keep that deposit base in cash? Most likely no. So you're going to employ what we call the carry trade and you're going to buy U.S. treasuries. At least it gives you a bit more of a yield, right, for sure. Well, what if you're an international buyer? You're sitting out there in Frankfurt, Germany or Tokyo, Japan. Even with the Euro and the Yen right weakening here, you can take your money instead of buying your own government debt, which is yielding basically nothing. I mean, Germany still has negative yields, you're gonna buy the US Treasury because it's the best game in town. Not to mention it's even safer. So that has a perpetual bid on the 10-year treasury. So as much as the economy is growing and the 10-year treasury yield should be higher, it's gonna find it very difficult to migrate much higher. You mentioned technology, and this is a, one of our sub themes, right? especially these mega cap tech names. The beauty of this business is it's, it's one paradox after another, right? And that's what makes it challenging, because when you, just when you think you know exactly what you'd want to do, and, and it doesn't always play out that way. But here we have a bunch of major technology companies that issue almost no debt, right? They're very cash flow rich, so interest rates going up should not necessarily affect their balance sheet, right, for sure. And these companies are, as I mentioned, cash flow rich. So the interest rate going up, the argument would be, well, Brad, these multiples are so elevated in technology, don't you think a higher discount rate, when we start to discount those cash flows back to today, don't you think that's going to bring down the value of their business? And I would say, sure, all things held equal, that's to be true. But these companies are not as wildly overvalued as you think. And as we like to say, Mark, there is a level of heterogeneity inherent within anything. And within technology, you have some companies that have maybe a 10 times multiple, right? Price relative to earnings is 10 times. And then you have other companies that have a five to 600 multiple. Now, yes, those companies, the smaller cap tech names, they're going to be out of favor here, right, as the Fed tightens rates, as they should be. In some cases, they're not even profitable, but yet their multiples have gone up so significantly because of cheap interest rates. But when you're one of the FANG names or some of these larger cap tech names, we believe when we see those companies go down, and we're not saying there's a guarantee here, but you have to be curious as to why that's the case. uh, And that might actually present a viable buying opportunity in large cap growth.
1: I agree. And clearly, when you see them go down those large cap names, obviously, that does represent an opportunity for investors to take a good look. But clearly, you don't want to catch a falling knife either uh, when you're in a month like this. And then, of course, the Fed is coming out. The Fed is concluding this two-day meeting tomorrow. You want to parse the news that comes out of the Fed meeting. and, And you want to see how corporate earnings line up and obviously this week in particular and moving forward, we'll we'll have a plethora of, of corporate earnings on the docket. So having said this about the uh, 10-year real yields remaining negative, you mentioned that, well, that should provide a, a positive catalyst, yes, for, for continued economic activity?
2: Yes, by all means it should. And I could, I could elaborate on it because let's face it, we as human beings, or more specifically as investors, we don't think of things in real terms. And there's a good reason for that, right? Inflation has been dormant for 40 years. So nominal versus real, and of course, the difference is inflation adjustment, has been very similar, right, going back to the early 80s. So we haven't had to think in terms of real yields. But one example, to your point, is when you look at the real 10-year treasury, which is also the yield on tips, right? That is still a negative, call it 0.8. It was negative 1% coming into this year. But obviously, the 10-year Treasury went up a bit, and inflation is is kind of doing its thing. So what's the big deal with negative 10-year Treasury yields uh, on a real basis? Let me position it this way. When the real yield is low, and actually, let me take a step back here, Mark, right? So the real yield would be the nominal Treasury yield. In this case, let's look at 10 years, right? The nominal 10 year treasury yield. So let's say that's a 1.7. And then we subtract out the expectation for 10 year inflation. And right now, you could say that's about 2.7, right? Um, And that number obviously ebbs and flows. So when you take 1.7, subtract out inflation to get the real, that gets you right to this negative 100 basis points. That's the real yield that's negative. Now, where we come from, when the real yield is low, that facilitates economic activity. That facilitates corporate profitability as well. And this is why this is to be true. Let's think about it. What did we just talk about? We talked about nominal treasury yields. We'll stop there. Nominal treasury yields are the starting point for corporations to borrow money. We know that when companies borrow money, there's a spread to treasuries, right? And it's typically 10-year treasuries. Um, and there's a particular spread. Maybe it's 100 basis points. If you're a high- yield company, maybe it's 300 basis points. But you're going to have a little bit of a spread because you're a corporation, right? So you should have a, you know you should compensate your bondholders more than the US treasuries. So we know that the 10-year treasury yield is that starting point. And if 10-year treasury yields go up, and this is what the media focuses in on, oh my goodness, that's a bad thing. That's a headwind for corporate profitability because companies obviously have this insatiable addiction to debt. And now when they go ahead and issue a new bond, that could obviously be at a higher cost of capital. That makes sense to me. But we can't stop there. right? That's a univariate outlook. That's just focusing in on one thing, and it's not terrific, right? Well, what about inflation? Inflation is seen as a proxy for nominal revenue growth. Why is that true? Because even if you're a a ho-hum company right, that has a, a decent product, you should be able to increase the price of your product or service at the bare minimum by the amount of inflation. And if inflation is higher, which it certainly is, revenues, if inflation's higher than nominal treasuries, revenues should mitigate the higher cost of capital. So, when real yields are low, we always say that typically tells us that all things held equal, companies should be profitable. When real yields are negative, my goodness, right? That's when we say corporate profitability should remain strong. And we expect real yields to become less negative, but that's going to be a real challenge for the real yields to break into positive territory, right? You'd have to have the 10 year treasury go to 2.7. Or you'd have to have inflation come down by about 100 basis points, or a combination of the two, right, to get those real yields up to 0%. And we're not calling for a 2.7 nominal, and we're not calling for a terrific decrease over 10 years for inflation, right? So we would suggest that real yields will continue to remain negative here, even less so. And that should allow economic activity to do just fine here in 22.
1: So what does Fidelity see as the 10-year yield? What's the forecast for that by year's end? And what's the forecast for the inflation rate?
2: Yes. So the forecast for the inflation rate is 2.4%. That's the the December 2022 number, 2.4%. That's core CPI. Headline CPI is at 3.5% so that's the forecast for inflation you know call it 11 months from now and as far as the 10-year treasury if we get to two and a quarter you know that would surprise us but that would be the high end of our range so 2 to 2.25 so when we do that calculation our real yields will still be slightly negative
1: let's touch on the asset classes for equities what is your forecast? What's Fidelity's forecast for large cap growth stocks this year? I know we touched on the mega cap tech sector. Give me a sense of large cap growth and uh, while you're at it, small cap growth and value. And then if you if you would elaborate on how the small cap growth and, you know, value or a blend does in this rising interest rate environment. Yes, by all means.
2: So the outlook for large cap growth continues to be one of optimism, right? We still remain constructive. And we talk about tech, Mark, because as you know, 48% of large cap growth is made up of the technology sector. Uh, that's easy to get to those higher numbers because of Apple, Microsoft, right? Alphabet, those companies are so significantly big um, that you get almost 50% of large cap growth in tech. But you also have consumer discretionary, right? Amazon and Tesla, those would be the two big names there. But then you have communications, which obviously uh, actually Alphabet and even Meta. I'm still having a hard time calling it Meta, but the company formerly known as Facebook, uh, and those are in the comm services sector. So we continue to be constructive on larger-cap, growth-oriented companies. Why? Because as much as we're constructive on the economy getting better, it's eventually going to come back down to trend. And you're going to want to own companies that exhibit high levels of innovation. You're going to want to own companies that have strong growth trends, stronger than the overall economy. And right now, they seem out of favor. But as we just went through the exercise of, on the larger-cap growth side, we still remain constructive on a lot of those constituents that make up that style box. And the other point I would make, it's not as if large cap growth only did well because interest rates were so low. Let's not forget that large cap growth really started to exhibit you know, dominance over value really in 2016. And you know, less, at least to my recollection, the Fed tightened once in 15, once in 16, three in 17, and four in 18, A large cap growth did just fine, even in a tightening environment. So, you know, that narrative we can't have too much conviction on because, you know, you'd be careful what you ask for because, again, large cap growth did well in a tightening rate environment. And if that's where we're about to find ourselves in, then why would we want to, you know, I would say omit that style box? Now, to your point, there's growth and there's value, and then there's large and there's small. So, when the Fed tightens rates, what you typically see is a growing economy. So one could argue, I would say very effectively, that small cap growth should do well in these environments, right? Companies that are growing and they're getting good revenue growth. But the challenge is a lot of these companies, because of the last couple of years, as we talked about, have come to market in a post IPO manner where they don't have any fundamental growth, right? They might have cash flows, but they have negative earnings, for example. Uh, But yet their stock prices were bid up, right? The Russell 2000 growth was the best area to invest in 2020. It was the worst area to invest in 2021. And so far, that style box is down over 15%, even through yesterday on the year. So you can see how that small growth box is out of favor, even though historically, we wouldn't mind small cap growth in a rate tightening environment. Now, small cap value, for what it's worth, a very different story, right? Small cap value is going to have an abundance of smaller cap financial companies, industrial companies, energy companies, and even some real estate. And those areas of the market should appreciate, right? Literally, as the Fed tightens rates and as we continue to see higher levels of inflation. So we actually have been advocating for a pair trade, and this is just fidelity, right? And certainly uh, subject to revision. But we've been advocating for a pair trade in the Morningstar style map, right? Large cap growth and small cap value. Almost no overlap between those two style boxes, as you would imagine. And on any given day, you're either going to get the large cap growth companies outperforming as it becomes apparent that the economy may eventually slow, or you're going to get those smaller cap value-oriented industries that are very capital-intensive, very asset-rich, outperforming when the economy is continuing to grow. So that's the outlook we have for 2022, obviously subject to revision.
1: Let's touch on international equities, both developed markets as well as emerging markets, and, and give us your outlook there. And then finally, let's take a look at the, uh, the fixed income asset class and the sub-asset classes like uh, high yield and investment grade corporate bonds and municipal bonds, if you can touch on the, those areas.
2: The international space from a stock by stock perspective still remains, uh, we would say, very fertile in terms of finding good companies, right? And if my day job was to manage an international portfolio, and obviously I work with a a lot of those individuals here, they would tell you that that's how they go about their their day-to-day, right? They buy companies, not countries. And I bring that up because the outlook, the macro outlook internationally, emerging markets, for example, doesn't look great because of the slowdown that we're witnessing in China uh, and some of the geopolitical you know the appearance of geopolitical conflicts right so western based europe could have some challenges here right interest rates still remain very low uh, so we're not seeing a tremendous amount of economic activity obviously china is going through what we'd call a zero covid set of policies which could end up not working for them We would actually say that it's, I'm not sure how that can work for them when you have such a transmissible variant known as Omicron. But nonetheless, they continue to double down their efforts there to keep this variant at bay. Um, That could backfire. And that's obviously dampening economic activity. So international appears cheaper. It appears as if it's growing faster. We want to own it, but we want to own it individually, right? Stock by stock through an ETF, through a mutual fund. But As our folks at Fidelity say, a little bit of discretion in the international and global markets goes a very long way. You don't want to just own the index because if you own the index, then you're at the mercy of all of these Japanese and European financial companies, for example, that haven't been very profitable as one simple example. Um, So you definitely would want to diversify away from the index composition and look towards somebody who could find good fast-growing companies, regardless of where their zip code might be. And that, historically, people would say, hey, Brad, international has failed my portfolio. And what I would come back with as a response is international indexing has failed your portfolio. But active international, actually, in some cases, has given you an S&P 500-like return. I'm sure your audience knows this, but in case they don't, here's one simple example. The MSCI EFA, which is a very broad-based index, its sector composition is overweight to financials and industrials, right? Very cyclically oriented industries, sectors, very value oriented. But it has less than 10% of its assets, right, or constituents in the technology sector. And I'm not saying that tech should outperform financials. All I'm suggesting is that if you're buying the EFA as it's constructed, you really have a bet against technology, right? Because it's only a 10% weight. And in the S&P, it's about a 28% weight. And I don't know how many clients actually are aware of that, right? So being active pays off.
1: I would venture to say not many. And that's very, very helpful for them to know our audience. And and many advisors probably aren't really highlighting that. When they pick an ETF fund that uh, focuses on Europe and Asia, and uh, wondering you know now you know do i have tech exposure and you're saying it's a bet against tech exposure so that's an important distinction
2: we would say the same thing even if you were to do the MSCI EM the emerging market index right that's 33 34% china and you know the jury's out on whether china grows this year or not but do you want to own an index just because it's cheap Knowing farewell that you're at the mercy of what China might do here, right? They are a totalitarian government, so you know we could own a strategy that has some Chinese equities, but we don't have to be holding to the thirty-plus percent. Let's talk fixed. So, to us, fixed income has three benefits, right, to a portfolio, or at least historically it has Mark. Right, benefit number one. It's all about income, right? Or at least it should be. And historically, this has been a tremendous source of income, especially for retirees, right? Uh, So that's benefit one. Benefit two, the opportunity for capital appreciation, right? Sometimes you buy a bond cheap and you can sell it at a higher price, right? Just like equities doesn't happen as often, but capital appreciation uh, has allowed for people to make money there. And then benefit number three is safety, right? And that's obviously ballast that's the diversification benefit that fixed income has provided our portfolios hence why we've done 60 40 portfolios as an example historically so you have 60 equity 40 bonds and in the past that actually worked for you because maybe the bonds were paying 6 or 7% right um and equities were getting you 8 or 9% it was a beautiful thing but today back to those three benefits right benefit number 1 are we getting income from our high quality bonds Arguably, no, right? I mean, maybe we are, but on an inflation-adjusted basis, back to the real yield observation, perhaps you're guaranteeing yourself a negative return when looking at high-quality bonds, such as government debt or investment-grade bonds.
1: Or municipal debt, for that matter, right, Brad?
2: Municipals, right? Municipals are very expensive right now. Uh, in some cases, you'd be better off just buying U.S. Treasuries unless you absolutely didn't want to have you know, the taxability of that income stream. But municipals are pricey, Uh, so from a a tax equivalent yield, doing the math, we would actually be more apt to buy U.S. treasuries than than municipals. But let me just get back to this this high-quality debt versus credit, right? So high-yield bonds or leveraged loans, as an example. To us, they both play a role in a portfolio. So on the high quality side, we continue to be major advocates of that. Why? Because this should be your ballast, right? This should be your insurance policy when you have downside volatility. So we shouldn't neglect higher quality core bonds, even though we know income is low, right? we know prices are high. We know that, but we still feel like it's a small price to pay for that level of inherent safety. On the credit side, we're constructive on the economy. We're constructive on corporate fundamentals. So therefore, we're constructive on credit-sensitive bonds. And the beauty of those strategies is they do provide a higher level of income, a bit more of a cushion, even when the Fed tightens interest rates, which again, we think is going to be less than more. Um, So when you put them together, and this is a personal decision, obviously with your assistance or any of your team members, Mark, but It's about, well, how much do I want, right? Do I want 60 in equities, 40 in bonds? And of that 40, I'll do half in high quality and half in below uh, investment grade quality. Obviously, that's a very personal decision. Maybe some people do 80% equity, 20 bonds, but those 20 are all quality because they already know they're kind of overweight on the equity risk. So that's where it becomes a personal decision based on the willingness and ability to assume risk. But the point we'd want to convey is, High-quality bonds should continue to be a big component of a diversified portfolio, regardless of what the Fed might do. Because as we like to say, a bad year in bonds is, in these days, a bad hour in stocks, right? So that's just something to
1: keep in mind. Well said. Well, with that in mind, this has been very, very enlightening, very, very helpful. During our conversation, Brad, you mentioned that uh, this business, the business of investing, presents many paradoxes and I will say that you're uh, 200% accurate on that statement but you did a wonderful job of explaining what these paradoxes are across the board and I'm grateful for having you today as my guest I want to thank you for joining me and our audience and I look forward to uh, observing your commentary and and crossing paths with you again in the very near future again thank you Brad Brad Pinault from Fidelity Institutional Asset Management. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, to my audience, thank you for joining me. Brad, is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up?
2: Uh, no, the only thing I'd like to say is just to express my sincere appreciation for this opportunity, and certainly I hope your audience found uh, this to be worthwhile, and perhaps we can do this again and you know, stay the course, as they say. Uh, there's a lot of noise out there, and we can do our very best to weed through the noise and try to get through the signal. So that's how we would suggest it, and really appreciate the time here. It was a lot of fun.
1: Thank you. It was a privilege. Thanks, Brad. Have a good day, and uh, let's hope these markets get back on an even keel, and there's not as much volatility to uh, to shake up uh, the investor community. And to my audience, thank you again. It's been a pleasure, and I'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to Martiak Market Update. Mark Martiak is the executive producer. Sean Dooley is producer. We also want to thank Libby Grant. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay tuned for Mark's next episode coming soon. Visit our website to join our email list or find extra resources and information at markmartiac.com.